Good morning, everybody. Please grab your Bible if you brought one. If you don't, by the way, future weeks, uh, just so you know, in the lobby or by the doors, we have free copies of the Bible that we would love for you to take, whether you're going to borrow it on the morning uh, or keep it because you don't have one. That would be a gift to us. But we love hearing pages turn during the service and and be looking at the Word together, uh, which is what we're about to do. Uh, I'm Kenny. I'm one of our uh, elders here at Grace, over at Grace Fullerton, actually. We've done a swap again. We got Jackson over at our campus this morning, and, uh, and I'm here, uh, my privilege to, to be with you. Turn uh, to 1 Peter chapter 3, if you would. This morning, I want to start right out of the gate, reading our text, and I have a couple of questions I want us to think about uh, related to it before we actually work through the passage itself. 1 Peter 3. Uh, let, me, let me pause, pray as we begin. Uh, Father, that last song, that is uh, what this is about, what this text is about, what all of the scriptures are about, uh, what uh, all of human history is about, uh, that all glory would be given to Christ as king. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that... Um, although this world is enslaved to sin, that we are enslaved to sin, that Christ, you um, came to rescue and you humbled yourself and you uh, became a man and you suffered and you yielded to the Father and you obeyed to the cross and you died in our place. Uh, And we thank you that you're risen because the grave had no claim on your perfect uh, life and that your eternal life and value uh, and worth now can stand uh, in our place and and give us forgiveness of sin um, and adoption by the Father as children and and glorious inheritance with the saints. Uh, Lord, we thank you for that coming day that this song just sang about uh, where one day every knee will bow to you and we will see with our eyes our Savior uh, who gave himself for us. What a beautiful hope again this morning. I pray that you would help us in this text here see how these things relate to the world seeing your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Let me read. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Don't let your adorning be external braiding of hair and wearing of gold or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
All right, one of the responsibilities I have here at Grace is to, to keep our, our preaching calendar um, scheduled for both of our campuses. And as you know, or if you're coming recently, you've noticed the same person isn't preaching every week. And so we, we share uh, preaching uh, among a team of preachers. And weeks back, as we were sorting all this out, I tried really hard to not be preaching this Sunday. And I knew you'd laugh at that, but it's not because of what this text actually is about. The reason I was trying to avoid it is I had planned for six months to be a part of a relay race with 11 other guys here at Grace called Ragnar, which is a 200-mile relay that starts at Huntington Beach and ends in Coronado in San Diego and goes all the way through the night, each person running three different times. And that was yesterday and Friday. Benjamin, Satan is one of them. Raise your hand, Ragnar guys who are in the room. Anyway, so I had had this plan for months. I was looking forward to it. Well, side note, in God's wisdom, which I don't understand, on Thursday, the day before the race, he took my lower back out in a way that I had to bow out, just back spasms overnight. So I ended up not even being able to run in the race. But uh, weeks back, I was trying to angle so this Sunday, I wasn't going to be standing here sleep-deprived with aching quad muscles. Um, but um, one by one, the different guys, I, I couldn't, couldn't preach on this text. And as I realized uh, this is going to be me, I said, all right, Lord, it's clear. You obviously want me to preach on this Sunday on this text. So Lord, help me understand why. And uh, I'm clear this morning of at least one reason why the Lord wanted me to study and preach this text is for the sake of my wife and our marriage. This is a glorious passage. This isn't one uh, to think of drawing the short straw and having to, to preach this passage. This is something that points to the glory of Christ. Uh, and and, and I, I've been helped even this week and reminded and admonished as I've thought about how God calls Betsy to love me as my wife and how God calls me to love her as her husband. Uh, this is a precious thing that can speak of Christ and that we need help in been admonished and encouraged in this, and I hope you will as well this morning. Um, yeah, the Lord's given me a treasure in my wife. We just had 18, uh, our 18th anniversary back in uh, uh, December, so our, our marriage officially became an adult, the way I think about it. It's, it's, it's of legal age. It's 18 now. It can buy cigarettes and get arrested. Um, but before we dive into these verses, I have two questions that I think are important for us to consider. Uh, and the first one is, who needs to hear this? Who needs these seven verses here in this room this morning? Well, let's start with the obvious ones. Number one, uh, if you are a wife or a husband, this is immediately practical and relevant for you. There are some distinct ways that God calls you in your marriage to love one another that even though it is true that in Christ there is no male or female, we are all one in Christ, nevertheless, these distinct ways of loving each other aren't thrown out the window with that. But Peter intends for us to see, no, this is actually continues to be a, a way that husbands and wives in Christ uh, love one another uh, in a way that uh, displays something even more glorious uh, than love uh, between the two of them. So if you are a wife or husband, obviously, this is for you. Number two, if you have a wife or husband, this passage is for you. I know you're thinking, huh, that's the same group of people. But the emphasis I want you to hear is this. If you have a wife or husband, so husbands, you need verses one through six here. 
You need to hear these. Husbands, we need to hear these. We need to be reminded of what God calls our wives to in this marriage so that we might seek to love and lead in such a way that those verses are not ugly or a burden uh, or difficult to the best of our ability. So don't check out husbands until verse seven. And then you hear husbands and you spark up and listen to the last bit. And, and, simul- and similarly, wives, uh, you need to hear again and be reminded what God calls your husband to do in the way he loves and leads uh, in this marriage. Uh, that God calls him to understand some important things about you and who you are uh, and show you honor. Not so that then you can leave here and go, huh, huh, and make him like that, but that you might encourage and fan into flame every step your husband takes in that direction. All right. So what about everybody else? If you're not married, should you have stayed home today, listened to last week's podcast or something? Uh, Should we have kept this text for marriage conference or marriage retreat or something like that? I don't think so. You know, Peter wrote this letter, would have sent it around to a whole bunch of churches and they would have been gathered and read the whole letter all together. There's no notes here uh, before chapter three. Hey, dismiss everyone who's not married. They can go take five, take a water break or use the bathroom and then come back in later. This is intended to be read for all the church to hear and I think for good reasons. Here's another reason you might need to hear this even if you're not married. Uh, Number one, you know husbands and wives. You are part of the church here. You are brothers and sisters in Christ with married men and married women. And Hebrews 10.23 came to my mind this week. Let us consider how we might stir one another to love and good works. So let's think specifically for married men that you know and married women that you know. This passage speaks to ways that they are called to love and work good for their spouse. So how are you in a grace group or in relationship gonna uh, stir up your married uh, uh, friends who are men or women to love uh, and honor and respect and follow and, and put their spouses first uh, wisely? Well, you need to understand what this thing is in marriage that God calls them to. That you would counsel them appropriately and pray for them wisely and responsibly. Another reason, even if you're not married, you ought to, uh, you, this is important for you, is that you desire to be a husband or a wife. Or you desire to have a husband or a wife. You aspire to be married. You're, you're seeking that. Peter's describing what this thing is that you're seeking is. So that can help you rethink maybe why you want to be married and what this thing called marriage is that you desire, that you can see the beauty of it. Um, But also, I would hope that it would inform who you are seeking out as a husband or a wife. Reminded what God calls you to as a wife or reminded what God calls you to as a husband, are you drawn to and looking for people who would make this easier or more burdensome? Now, that being said, we are all sinners. So uh, unmarried people, you are not, if you're holding out to find the man or the woman who will never make this a burden or difficult, you'll never find them. (laughs) So, but we're sinners, right? But there are green lights and red flags that this passage can help us be aware of. Character issues, spiritual maturity that would give an indication of, I can entrust myself to that person. I can lay my life down for that person willingly and joyfully. Two more reasons that struck me. Uh, You need this passage if you want to know God better. This passage says something that God sees in his sight as very precious. 
highly valuable. God delights in it here. And whenever we hear the Bible saying, this is something that in God's sight is precious, that's a, that's a, a, a flag. This is something that's, that's, that's close to the heart of God. This tells us about his character and what he values and what brings him glory because he delights in him being glorified in his people. So there's something here to learn about the character of God. There's also something to learn in, in the warning at the end here. When he says, husbands, if you don't show honor and live in an understanding way with your wives, it will affect your prayer life. Your prayers might be hindered. The ears of the, uh, the, Lord, the, ears of the Lord are open to the righteous later on in next week's passage. Um, but to the one who is living stubbornly in unrepentant sin, harshly toward uh, one another, like your wife, uh, warning, well, this teaches us something about the character of God that doesn't just apply to husbands, but even more broadly uh, to our relationship with God. Last is, uh, if you need to be reminded of the gospel and understand the gospel more clearly, this passage is for you. And that's all of us. Peter never lets us lose sight of the gospel in this letter. Every section of this, sort of like the highest uh, landmark in the area as you're hiking that you can see from wherever you're at and orient, uh, that's the gospel and the cross and the, 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 the death and resurrection of Christ in our place that secures our salvation and earns us an inheritance with him. That we see from every point and it's true here as well. We see it a couple of ways. One, we see it in that this, God's intention in marriage is that in these relationships there would be intentional echoes of the way Jesus saved us. Think about this. In securing our redemption, Jesus both submitted his will to the Father's will and obeyed even through difficulty to the cross and laid down his life joyfully and willingly because he loved and wanted to honor his father. And simultaneously, Jesus led by humble, sacrificial servant leadership in laying his life down for his bride. So as we think about marriage, it is intentionally supposed to echo and point us back to how God saved us through Christ, both sides of the relationship. And remind us that husbands and wives, you are equally co-heirs of the grace of life because Jesus both submitted uh, and led and laid down his life. All right, so hopefully everyone in the room here understands we need these verses here. These are important to everyone. So here's my second question. Why is Peter so focused on submission? This is the third time he's gone there. Soccer, you get a red card for that, right? He keeps saying, be subject, be subject, be subject. Why is this on his mind? Look at 2.13. Be subject to the Lord's sake to uh, governments, every human institution, whether it's emperors or governors. Verse 18, uh, servants, be subject to masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And now here again for a third time, verse three, one, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. But notice for the first time here, Peter addresses both parties in this relationship. So before he doesn't say, hey, citizens, um, uh, fearing God, honor the emperor. And emperors, if you happen to be present, I have a word for you. And, and with servants, he doesn't address masters. But here, he, he addresses both wives and husbands. What launched him in this direction of, of thinking about um, 
submission. Look back in chapter two, verse nine and 10. I think this is where uh, Peter headed off in this trajectory. He had gotten to this high point and said, this is what he desires, is that the church as a body of people redeemed by Jesus' blood and made alive uh, through this miracle of being born again and giving a living hope, that the church would proclaim the excellencies of the God who called them out of darkness into that. That, God, that the church would uh, cause this message of the gospel and the God behind it to shine brightly, proclaimed through the word of the the gospel. But then he jumps right to this conduct thing in verse 12. Proclaim the excellencies of the God of the gospels. Verse 12, how? Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they might see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, Peter wants the church to proclaim the the message of the gospel with words and message, but also then to magnify that message by living out of that living hope, expressing it in ways that people see it, connect the dots between your hope and your conduct, and are drawn to the God in whom you hope. With conduct. So then verse 13, he begins to get more specific. And he he gets on this idea of submission, I think, because in particular, this is one way that Christians' conduct visibly speaks to the living hope that they have and shows in a a visible, tangible way this internal hope that you can't see until it's lived upon. And submitting to various authorities on earth as God has ordained is an opportunity to show who your ultimate hope is in and that you submit to God. So submission is an opportunity to display your living hope and magnify the gospel. So citizens can magnify God and the gospel in entrusting themselves to God who is judge and then submitting themselves even to very flawed governments. Or servants can entrust themselves and mindful of God that God has made promises to them that will never be taken away. They can then submit themselves even to a harsh master. And wives and husbands can magnify God and display their living hope in the distinct ways that they each make themselves second to the other and put the other first. I think that's what's similar in likewise wives, likewise husbands. He doesn't say likewise husbands be subject to your wives, but to both he says, act in such a way toward your spouse that you are putting them first and making yourself second in love and out of fear of God. All right, so here we are at the passage here. How are husbands and wives called to magnify God in their marriage? He starts with wives and then he turns to husbands. So I got two points here. Wives are called to do this. Um, In shining submission, uh, submission that that shines, that's visible. Um, And husbands are called to do this in showing honor, showing honor to their wife communicating that not just with words but their very actions and their care uh, for their wife and their leadership, showing honor. They're both visible, shining, showing, submission, and honor. So let's take each of these. Shining submission. Here's a couple of reasons why I wanted to add that word shining. Um, First is that notice in these first few verses, uh, Peter keeps talking about people who are watching this submission. He says, first of all, 
unbelieving husbands of wives who have been born again, they might be one without a word when they see this conduct in their wives. They see this hidden person of the heart expressed toward them. That can shine in such a way that that just might persuade their husbands to rethink this gospel that they've rejected. So this, is a, this submission isn't an ugly thing. It's something beautiful that ought to draw an unbelieving husband to his wife and to Christ through her. The second witness here is God himself. Look at verse four. Peter says, God sees this hidden person of the heart, this submission, um, and in his sight, it's very precious. He delights in it. It's something that shines. It's something that magnifies God. He delights in it because it draws attention to him. The wife is is drawing attention to her God and Savior through uh, this submission. I also say shining because in verse three, this word adorning. He says that as a wife is, is seeking to love her husband in this way, it's a form of beautification. And he, and he makes a contrast. He says, take more care and concern to adorn yourselves with these inner qualities than in adorning yourselves with external beauty that'll fade with age or tarnish like jewelry. It's a contrast. He's not saying, wives, just wear potato sacks and let your hair just go to a rat's nest and and give away all your jewelry to savers. He's making a contrast here. I think he's saying, expend more energy investing in lasting beauty than fleeting beauty, which fits very nicely with the theme of his letter, right? Living in light of eternity, not just this immediate present. And he's saying, wives, as you seek this, this is actually something that is beautifying you in the sight of God and your husband and the world. So what is it? Well, a few things he says about this submission or subjection. He says, uh, be subject to your own husband. So there's one limitation on this. He's not saying, wives, um, submit yourselves to all husbands or all men, but he has in mind this relationship right here in particular, this man that you made vows to for life before God. Subject, be subject to this man, your husband, your own husband. And it means willingly submit to the leadership that God has called him to step up and lead with in love. There is an authority that God has entrusted him with that he needs to carry out soberly and carefully and in a Christ-like way. But wives, um, follow that leadership. In the last couple of weeks, I read a lot of different people um, trying to define or, or sum up the nature of this submission. Here's one I really liked. This pastor said, It's the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm this leadership God has entrusted to her husband by helping him carry it through according to her gifts. It's a disposition to follow that authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. I like those words disposition and inclination because they make room for, at times, husbands will act in such a way and lead in such a way that the Bible would say, you ought not follow your husband there. And that even in those circumstances, a wife could live this out by communicating to her husband, my inclination is to uh, follow where you lead, but I can't follow you there. 
He goes on, he says, it's an attitude that says, what I delight in is for you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and you lead with love. I don't flourish in the relationship when you're passive and I have to make sure the family works. Which wives and moms I know in this room can make it happen. I, my wife is omnicompetent to make our family work. This has nothing to do with competency or even gifting or ability. But it's an attitude that says, I desire to see you lead in that way and to partner with you in doing it. Another author I read this week uh, made a great point that we might overlook. He says, an often overlooked feature of the Bible's wifely submission commands is how they're addressed to wives and not husbands. The Bible doesn't tell husbands ever to make their wives submit. But the contrary, the Bible calls wives to voluntarily surrender that prerogative. So husbands, hear this. Submission in this way is a gift given to you. It's not a right to be taken. It's a way that your wife blesses you and a gift she gives to you. And I know this idea is increasingly seen as ugly and outdated and, uh, and, and like a swear word in our culture. But here God says it's very precious. So here's the deal. If something in God's sight is very precious, but in your sight, not so much, what's going on there? Three options that occur to me. One, if this idea of of submission uh, is not precious in your sight, it could be one that your understanding of it is not God's understanding of it. So maybe when you think of that, imported with that are distortions of it and abuses of that that you've seen and, and ugly extremes. And, and so the thing that's not precious in your sight, God would actually say, yeah, that's not precious in my sight either. And so that calls for clarification, which we're gonna do in a minute, understanding what this submission is not. But that's not the only reason why you might see this uh, as something that's not precious. Another possibility is that you actually do understand God's definition here and you just don't like it. It's possible, right? Christians, we do this all, all the time. There's lots of things that God says to him he delights in and are precious in his sight that in our heart, we don't always love, right? Think of loving your enemies, I see that as precious when it's out there, you doing that, and it's noble from a distance. But when I'm called to love that enemy, all of a sudden that's not so precious in my sight. That's difficult. That involves me uh, uh, setting aside my pride, being humble, offering grace, right? So in any ways that Christians are called to submit, in all the various ways, we're called to submit to elders in the church. The elders are called to submit to one another. We're called to submit to the governing authorities. And in any way we're called to submit, it could be possible that we don't see it as precious because of sin in our heart that we don't want to yield ever to anybody. We never want to be in second place or in, in a supporting role. That's possible. Third reason it might not seem precious to you right now, in particular, I was thinking wives, is because uh, your husband might be making this really difficult. Bessie's gonna be third service, so I'm implicated in this too. It's a sobering thing, husbands, to consider standing and preaching this passage, not just in front of your church, but in front of your wife. And I have to acknowledge that in some ways, husbands, we are responsible for making this not so precious in the sight of our wives. That's why Peter's got words for us. 
But let me go back to that first reason for a minute. So let's clarify and make sure there's not parts of this that shouldn't be in there um, that, that are making it seem uh, not precious to us. Here's some things that submission doesn't mean. Uh, this, these are not mine. David Helm, uh, an author of one of the commentaries I read, I really like some of these points he made. I want to read them. He says, it doesn't mean, submission doesn't mean that if your husband asks you to abandon your faith in Christ, you do so. Case in point, some of these wives right here, they have uh, made Christ Lord and, and repented and turned to Christ through the gospel and their husbands have rejected that same glorious good news. And Peter's actually giving them a weapon with which they might win their husband into the kingdom. So he is absolutely saying, don't follow your husbands and submit to their authority in believing what they believe. He also says, if your husband asks you to sin, biblical submission isn't, not, isn't calling you to do so. If your husband is acting in ways or calling you to partner with him um, or collude with him in ways that either are clearly unbiblical or contra- break conscience for you, the Bible's not calling you to follow his lead and, and break conscience or, or break God's law. That's where that inclination, I think, and disposition thing is so important that even there, that heart could be expressed even when you say, I'm sorry, I cannot follow you there. My desire is that you would lead in such a way that I could, though. He also says it doesn't mean you must agree with him always and never present a different view. Far from it. On the most important topic of all, what life is about and who we are to worship as God, husbands and wives here in this passage can be in polar opposite places. But in all sorts of other ways, husbands and wives are separate, independent, mental um, centers who have thoughts and wisdom and perspective that's important. And of course, submitting doesn't mean I agree with everything my husband believes or or uh, his perspective on everything. He also says, this doesn't mean you shouldn't try to influence your husband. These wives are are trying to influence their husband. I want my wife to be uh, trying to influence me, to edify me, to encourage me, to point me to Christ, to call me uh, toward righteousness. Um, There's a spirit with which Peter's calling wives to do that, but nevertheless, it's not saying just just allow your husband to work that out himself and, and, and don't participate in that. He says, it doesn't mean that if he's unfaithful to you, you're left without biblical recourse. Or that if he abuses you physically or through incessant verbal humiliation that you must just do nothing and accept the daily cruelty at all cost. That's not part of this definition. That's ugly. In fact, if that's the case in your marriage right now, I would encourage you as wives, after bringing that to your husband, bring that to our elders. If your husband is here, a member of this church, then, then he ought to be submitting to leadership here. We want to come alongside you in your marriage, sure that that wouldn't be happening. But submission doesn't mean just go along with that and just let it slide, take it. And I would add one more. It doesn't imply that wives in any way are inferior to their husbands. I, I would hope that would go without saying, but if not, hear that, husbands and wives equally created in the image of God. In Christ, you're equally precious in God's sight. So asymmetry in function and role has nothing to do with equality or worth. It can't because Jesus subjects himself to the Father. Same word. 
1 Corinthians 15 says, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, equal with God in deity, eternality, attributes, worth, worthy of worship. God the Son subjects himself, has subjected himself to God the Father in the incarnation and the cross and the bringing of people, uh, many sons and daughters to glory, to worship him. If God the Son does that, then it can't mean unequal. So in marriage, as in the Trinity, there is an equality of being and value while difference in roles are lived out. So this submission is a submission among equals. So what else does Peter say about it? Look at verse two. He says some things about just the spirit uh, in which uh, this, this submission is carried out or, 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 or how it, it looks. And he first says uh, it has to do with respectful and pure conduct. Literally, for respectful, he says in fear. Uh, and I don't think he means in fear of your husband's wives because throughout the rest of Peter's letter, when he calls Christians to live in fear, the fear he has in mind is fear of God and reverence of God and I answer to God. And I th- so I think literally what he's saying here is pure conduct that's lived out of in fear of God, wives. That's what he says about uh, submission to governing authorities. He says, fear God and then honor the emperor. Because you fear God, honor the emperor. Or what he says to slaves, mindful of God and entrusting yourselves to his uh, sovereignty and his care, um, you follow um, and and serve your masters. And here again, I think he's saying to wives, in fear and hope of God, conduct yourselves with purity. Be faithful in your marriage to your husband, even unbelieving ones, out of fear and reverence to God. Verse four, he says, this involves a a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle gentle doesn't mean fragile or frail. You know that? Gentle doesn't mean um, mousy and timid and lacking conviction. Gentleness is actually strength. The four times that adjective in the New Testament, gentle, is used, two of them are about Jesus. One of them, Jesus uses it of himself. He says, I am gentle uh, and lowly um, in heart or lowly in spirit. We wouldn't call Jesus weak. This gentleness means um, not insisting on one's own rights, Uh, not demanding one's own way, not pushy or selfishly assertive. Later in this letter, it occurs to me when Peter calls Christians to be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in them, he says, do it with gentleness. That doesn't mean with weakness, but it means not being um, pushy or selfishly assertive or demanding or badgering or try to pester people into the kingdom, but do it with a sense of, of gentleness. It's a restraint of strength, actually. And quiet here doesn't mean silent. It struck me that he doesn't say have a gentle and quiet mouth. He says have a gentle and quiet, a quiet spirit. That's a different thing. In other words, I think it means not a, a, a nagging, haranguing, uh, manipulative, I, I, I've got to make this thing work. I've got to bend my husband's to my will sort of way of, of approaching her husband. But, but a spirit that, uh, that, that is quiet, um, 
that doesn't have to try to make this happen with an excessive word. I was, I was thinking of uh, by all the terrible examples of wives and husbands we've seen in, on television over the years. And when I got to this one, I was thinking of Little House on the Prairie and Mrs. Olson. Remember Mrs. Olson? I think she stands for kind of the opposite of this gentle and quiet spirit. Man, she just had Nels just every day, just, just pounding him and making him just the way. And he sort of was this. And I think that P- Peter's saying, no, no, not that sort of spirit, but one that does seek to influence um, and edify um, through gentleness um, and, and, and tenderness and love. Another thing Peter says about this uh, is he holds up a, uh, Sarah and the way that she related to her husband Abraham as an example of this sort of spirit. He says, adorn yourselves like Sarah. Let me read verses five and six again. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and don't fear anything that's frightening. Okay, so what exactly is it about Sarah and the way that she related to Abraham that Peter wants us to, to, to see as an example here, wives? Well, he says, first of all, verse five, that she had a solid hope in God. She was one of these women of the, the Old Testament who had a hope in the covenant promises that God had made to her. And because of that, she then feared nothing that was frightening. Her confidence in God gave her sort of a fear God and what can man do to you sort of attitude. And then he says she expressed that hope by submitting and obeying him and his leadership and even calling him Lord, lowercase l, right? Not God, uh, but a term of honor, uh, respect and and, and, uh, um, uh, yeah, deference. Commentators are divided here when they look back at Genesis and say, what, what do we think Peter had in mind here? One option is this. Genesis 18 is the one place where it actually records Sarah calling Abraham Lord. And what happened was, after years and years of being married and having followed Abraham, uh, giving up everything, leaving family and homeland and heading out to a far country because God made these promises to Abraham to bless through them and give them a son, they had taken off and they'd wandered and they'd lived in tents and they'd faced dangers and difficulty and years of barrenness while they waited for this promise to, to come about and still they waited and still they waited and suddenly one day angels arrive and they say, it's time, Sarah's gonna conceive. And at that moment, Sarah laughs to herself and says, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The pleasure of actually having a child? In this view, would say that that Sarah is being held up as an example because her default disposition toward her husband, even in their old age, after lots of disappointment and difficulty, and even times where Abraham, in his uh, in his sin and cowardice, acted for his safety above her own. Nevertheless, here we find that that she's still calling him um, a term of endearment um, and looking to him uh, as the leader in their marriage. So that's one option. The second option is that possibly the couple of times that Abraham really blew it, Genesis 12, Genesis 20, two times where they're, they're, they're traveling in an area where there's hostile nations and powerful kings and his wife is beautiful and he's afraid that, that he's gonna get killed so that someone could take his wife and he says, Sarah, Sarah, they kind of conspire together. Sarah, because technically you are my half-sister, Genesis 20 says, just leave out that whole part about being uh, my wife. 
And twice, it almost um, leads to kings taking her as a wife into their bed. And under this view would say that Sarah's hope in God even led her to fear nothing frightening in that way and entrust that the Lord is going to make good on his promises to me even when her husband in a major way was not acting uh, for her safety. So that's an option. That one seems problematic to me for at least this reason. Here Peter says, you are her children if you do good and you don't fear anything frightening. And, and even though it's sort of technically true, it, it's hard for me to see Peter commending her following Abraham in, in a deception as being something that was good. I'm not sure. It could be that he's commending the, the faith behind it while not commending maybe the actual instance, but even still it's hard. But I, I do feel confident with, with this first of saying that it was clear that, that, that Sarah, after years of, of, of loving and following a husband like Abraham, still nevertheless followed his lead and loved him. So I'm inclined to, to, to land on option one there, but I, I don't know. But wives, God is calling you to magnify the gospel and your hope in God by following a far from flawless husband as you entrust yourself to God. In turn, husbands, now you are called to put your wife first also, but not in submission, not by turning and now you be subject to her, but in servant leadership and laying down your life and showing honor to her, showing honor, verse seven. Two things he says. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally means live with your wives according to knowledge. Don't live with your wives ignorantly. Live with your wives according to knowledge. Namely, show honor to her. That's the way, you know how you live in light of According to knowledge, you show her honor. You communicate to her with your words and actions how highly you value her and how she loves you. And he says knowledge of two things in particular here will help you, husbands. Hand in hand, here's the things. Number one, you are equal co-heirs of the grace of life with this woman. You are equally precious in the sight of God. You are one in Christ. Your wife is a daughter of the king, co-heir and inheritor of all the same eternal future that you are an heir of in Christ Jesus. That is your wife. And secondly, she's the weaker vessel in this relationship. That's the one where you think, wait, did Peter just shove his foot in his mouth right there? I think... it's okay to say the fairer sex, maybe, right? That one's all right. But the weaker vessel, maybe we got some problems with that. Weaker in what way does Peter have in mind? Does he mean just physically, generally speaking, statistically, that, that men are uh, fi- more, usually physically more strong than their, their wives or, or than women or emotionally sort of more resolute and, and courageous? I, I don't think either of those things are what Peter has in mind. I'm actually convinced that what Peter has in mind is this relationship uh, dynamic right here, the vulnerability that comes when a wife submits herself willingly to her husband and says, I'm gonna entrust myself to you, that in doing that, a wife makes her herself the weaker vessel in that relationship. That this isn't because of some inherent quality, generally speaking, in women different than men, but it's actually in marriage, your wife has made herself the weaker vessel in this. She's entrusted herself to you. So knowing that this co-heir of the grace of life, husbands, has entrusted herself like this to you, 
you live in a way that shows you understand that and, and show her honor. I thought, man, it would be particularly wise for us to hear from some wives on this. How do we do this? I, last week I sent out a, a little anonymous GraceNet questionnaire to a couple dozen wives at Grace Fullerton and La Mirada, and I asked three questions. I asked, how can a husband uh, make this easy uh, to follow uh, your leadership in this way? Secondly, how do husbands make this difficult? And third, I asked, how does your husband communicate, show honor to you in this way? And I got some great feedback. In fact, way more than I could ever read here at the end of this service. I think I'm gonna put, I think I'm gonna put it into a document and make it available uh, on our website so you can actually read word for word some really encouraging things here. But I tried, I attempted to sum it up here. Uh, oh, thanks, you already got me there, Ian. Um, with this, how can a uh, husband make it either a joy or a struggle for his uh, wife to follow his lead in their marriage? First of all, almost everybody said something along these lines. He works at good communication, especially at listening. Not just listening when wives bring something up, but asking wives and, and seeking their, their, inf- their input and their perspective and their wisdom uh, and their opinions. Um, and, they, and they actually, they seek out this good communication makes it a joy to then lead. It communicates that I, your voice is very important, as important in this as mine is. Uh, second common theme here was that he makes decisions together with her, that he doesn't see his leadership as a, I make the decisions and you live with them, but that we work together to make decisions. Um, another thing that makes it a joy is that he clearly submits to God, and this was in all sorts of ways. Husbands, uh, when you are clearly in God's word, reading it, it's dwelling in your hearts, you're meditating on it, you're sitting under the preaching of the word and it's forming you, and you are prayerful, and you're praying in your home, and you're praying in the church, and you're worshiping, and you are submitting yourself to the church and the leaders in that church. All this goes a long way to allow your wife to say, okay, I can trust where he's leading because he's a man who sees himself under authority. It's not his own. Many communicated this, that he shows me that my safety is his concern, my physical and my emotional safety, that he's not just looking out for himself first, but for me first. It engenders trust. When he humbles himself toward me, when he looks for ways all the time to show uh, that he puts me first, that he's not petty uh, in his grievances, when he lets small things go, uh, when he's willing to share responsibilities in our marriage according to gifting and not just, well, that's what I do here, Um, when he's not passive um, um, but willing to defer and yield, every issue is not a hill that he's got to die on, shows humility uh, and engenders trust. Just a couple more. Um, He nurtures and enables her spiritual, physical, and emotional health. Guys, I think, husbands, I think we can be guilty of um, caring much more of guarding our time to physically uh, get exercise and mentally be stimulated and have that sort of solo time we need and not try to guard that time also to make sure our wives and the moms of our kids are getting that time. And that makes it a joy to follow uh, our lead. He prays with and for her. He's honest and faithful. Uh, and, and this one was in everyone. He takes initiative in all kinds of things. First and foremost, in resolving conflict and seeking forgiveness and apologizing first. Admitting wrong first. Deci- leading and taking initiative to disciple children uh, in the family first. 
Lastly, I know we're tight on time, but ways that, that show honor. He affirms me verbally, both to me and to others. He thanks me. Um, he actively seeks to know me and know my heart. He shows his delight in me. He shows he enjoys time with me. Uh, and he serves me. And he serves our family, communicates honor. My friend Brian Howard likes to say, husbands, one of your uh, jobs is chief servant in your family. That's one of your roles. So husbands and wives, this is what we're called to. We're called to magnify God and the gospel through loving each other in these ways and we will fall short. I want us to finish remembering that uh, as we fall short, we look to Christ who submitted himself and laid down his life for us for the grace and forgiveness uh, that covers all that sin, all that failing. And then we turn back to one another when we extend that same grace and love and forgiveness to one another. And church, can we be a church that magnifies and holds marriage in honor like this and fights for the marriages in our church uh, so that Christ would be given glory? Let me pray. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd take these these thoughts and as we think and reflect on them even later today and through this week, um, uh, that one, uh, it would enhance our understanding of the, of the gospel, enhance our, our, our uh, worship in our hearts of Jesus. Uh, Lord, I do pray specifically for wives and husbands here uh, that you, your spirit would help apply and, and bring these things into the lives of their marriage in a way that, that makes marriages a joy uh, and makes marriages a witness to the watching world. Lord, I pray for uh, marriages where there is an unbelieving husband or wife uh, that as these roles are lived out uh, that you would use that to win um, spouses um, into the kingdom uh, for your glory. Lord, we need your help in this and we pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.